When I preach, I want to uh, convey to you the text and what it means, not just what it says. So my goal in preaching is not to bog you down with a lot of information, not to impress you with uh, the Greek word or the Hebrew word of what something means. My goal is to bring you to understand what the text means. And so there's a particular sentence, I guess you could say, if you want to write this sentence down, there's a particular sentence that uh, we will follow really for pretty much every sermon. If we, if I vary from that in any way, it's not going to surprise you. But, but for most of my sermons, I'll be following a particular sentence, and, and you'll see this in the way that I preach every Sunday, hopefully. And that is the statement that, that uh, helps guide the way I prepare. And the statement is this. We have a problem only Christ can fix. And we should respond to that. Uh, we should respond to what he has done. And so if you want to break that down into four categories or four areas of the sermon, it's us or we, problem, Christ, and response. So that's the way our... Our, this message will go, and that's the way most of my messages will go. And my intent in that is that you would receive what God is saying in His Word, and that you would respond to that by living in accordance with it. And so we all have roles to play. You are not just an idle participant in this sermon. I have the role of preaching to you God's Word, but you have the role of, really, you have the larger role, and I have part of your role as well, which is you have three things that I want you to be responsible for doing every Sunday that we meet. The first thing is that you need to listen well, and that means that you listen intently. If that means that you need to take notes, then take notes. If that means you just want to want to sit and and pay, listen uh, with your ears and, and focus on what I'm saying, then that's fine as well. But you listen well, number one. Secondly, is you need to trust the Word of God. So you listen to the Word of God, you trust the Word of God, and lastly, you obey the Word of God. And for you to fulfill your role as a church member well, your responsibility is to listen, to trust, and to obey. And so I hope that you'll do that. My interest in preaching to you is not so much that you get a lot of information and that you're able to fill up your notebook with all the stuff that I delineate to you, but rather that you are affected by what is said, that you allow the Word of God to have its effect on you. And so that is the intention behind uh, all that I preach, and you'll see that as we go forward, hopefully. Um, So our first series, like I said, is going to be on the book of Genesis. And I I felt like this is a good place to start, not just because it's the first book of the Bible, which is probably a good place to start anyway, but because as I've studied God's Word and as I've come and matured in God's Word over the years, I've come to realize just how central the book of Genesis is to every other book in the Bible. 
there are themes that run from the book of Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation. In fact, if you pick up the book of Revelation and read it without having a good grasp of the book of Genesis, then you will miss half the book. You won't understand most of the analogies, most of the points that the book of Revelation is making. And so it is essential for us as Christians to understand this first book of the Bible because so much of it is about where everything came from. Not just how we were created and not just uh, you know how families came to be and how sin came to be, but everything else that flows out of that fall of Adam and Eve, all of the purposes of man, all of the purposes of God are wrapped up and get their start in this book of Genesis. And so we need to study it and we need to understand it well in order to to know God's word and the rest of God's words well. And so what I want to do is each week we will take a chapter of Genesis and we're not going to read every chapter all the way through and we're not going to we're not going to go verse every verse through the the book of Genesis but I want to take a passage from each chapter a few verses that are the focal verses of that chapter and let's look at those and understand a major theme out of this book of Genesis as we go through it. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses 26 through 31, as kind of the pinnacle or the main focus of that first chapter of Genesis. And we hope to understand God's meaning from that as we go today. So what I'd like to do is we'll read this together And then I'll pray for us and then we'll get into the sermon in earnest. So Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed, That is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth. Everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening And there was morning, the sixth day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today because we know that your word is good. Lord, we come to you today because we know that your word has the power to create. It had the power in the beginning for you to say, let there be and there was. 
And because you have such power, not only do you have the does your word have the power to create real and material things, but it has the power to create things that are immaterial, things that are spiritual, things that are emotional, things that are mental. It has the power to take uh, uh, a dead spiritual life and to breathe new life into it so that it is alive and eternal. And you have done that with us in breathing into us the breath of life, but not just the breath of life that gives us life, but the breath of eternal life, which is your Holy Spirit. When we have trusted in you as your uh, trusted in your son, Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior, you have breathed into us the spirit of life that gives us uh, right standing with you, that gives us understanding, that gives us hope and trust and all that we need for our eternal salvation. Father, you create in us new life through your son, Jesus Christ, through the ministry of your word. And your word also speaks to us of who we really are. Your word tells us exactly what we are. And we might think that we can declare our own way, that we can say who we really are, but it is you who defines Reality. It is you who gives purpose and meaning and identity in this world. Father, forgive us this week as we have sought to make our own way, to define things under our own terms, to say what we think things really are without depending on you. Father, lead us in your way. Use your word to brighten our paths so that we might walk after you. Lord, I pray that you would give me the words to say that I might encourage and build up this congregation. Lord, take away those words that might distract or lead astray. Father, may the words that I say be uh, glorifying to you and may they be used for the furthering of your kingdom. Father, bless us now as we study from your word. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So. You know, I'm, I'm in a little bit of a conundrum here at the beginning of this new year because I, have, I make no secret about the fact that from November to New Year's is my absolute favorite time of the year. Beginning with Thanksgiving and all the eating and family and hunting and, and uh, all that goes into Thanksgiving and going all the way through Christmas and New Year. Those are my favorite times of the year. I loved it as a child. My dad was, uh, was a Santa Claus fanatic. I mean, he did everything from faking reindeer uh, droppings to, to faking the fact that Santa's boots had landed in the fireplace. He was fanatical, is fanatical about Christmas and even to this day with our children, he he uh, he uh, is uh, you know presents coming out of every door and under all all the uh, Christmas trees and everything that you could imagine. He is uh, excited and excitable about Christmas, and that rubbed off on me. I I enjoy Christmas. I enjoy this time of year. I I even like the cold. I like building a little fire. Uh, in the fireplace. I enjoy every bit of it. And then New Year's comes around 
And really, February comes around and there's just nothing to do. There's, it's cold. The leaves are all gone. The beauty of it is all gone. But I, I don't know about you, but after Christmas, I begin to notice a few extra pounds. I begin to notice some things that I didn't do last year that I, I, I wanted to do. And so around this time of year, beginning at the, the last week and following through to this week, I, I begin to sit down and think about what I want out of this new year. And yes, I'm not ashamed to admit it. I sit down and I write out some New Year's resolutions. And I say, well, I want to do this. I want to lose this much weight. I want to read these books. I want to uh, get this done around the farm. I want to do these things. And they never come to be like I want them to be. But I sit down year after year and set out these New Year's resolutions. And I'm not ashamed to admit that because I know everybody else does it too. I don't know if you do it, but apparently enough people do it that the TV advertisers and the internet advertisers have noticed it. Because I don't know if you've turned the TV on here lately, but all you will see if you pay attention to the commercials are advertisements for uh, gym memberships and workout equipment and plastic surgery discounts and everything else that might go into your uh, appearance and the way that you look uh, and the image that you have with other people. And what that says to me, uh, for one, is that apparently for the first few months of the year at least, we Americans are obsessed with our image. We're obsessed with what other people think of us, what other people see in us. And I want to suggest to you today that your New Year's resolutions and the New Year's resolutions of, of anyone is really a window into the soul. Your New Year's resolutions can serve as a window to your soul. And the reason is that oftentimes they reflect what you value most. What you really, in your core, think to be the most important things in your life. They're a window to your soul because they speak to what we believe about our purpose and our identity. Every year we look back on what we failed to accomplish in the year that was passed and we look forward to what we hope this year will will bring. And it says a lot about who we believe we are and what we believe we're here to do. After all, the two most important questions that anybody can ask and the two most important questions that anyone has ever asked are, who am I and what am I here to do? Those are the questions that philosophers and religious people have pondered for years and years. And the ancient pagans back in uh, Moses' day that were contemporaries of Moses and the Israelites, nations like the Babylonians and the Canaanites and the Hittites, they answered that question. And the way they answered that question was to say that the gods had ultimately created mankind to do their bidding. They had created mankind as slaves. And they, they, got, they were sitting around uh, being uh, leisurely and enjoy, enjoying the fruits of their creation. And they realized that they didn't have anybody to go get them a goblet of drink or to go farm the land that they had created. And so they created humans literally to be slaves. 
And so the, the pagans believe, the pagans of Moses' day, believed that really your purpose in life as a human was just to toil away under the sun. That your ultimate purpose and identity was to accept your lot in life, to accept your fate as the gods had declared it, and to toil away under the sun. Now be careful though, because you might be thinking that we in our modern sensibilities, we have certainly developed beyond that. But the truth is, we're no better. Sure, we have given up the ancient gods of Baal and Marduk, but in their place we have substituted those gods for other gods named science and chaos. And so now we accept that man is really no different than any other animal. And that all life is really just an accidental occurrence in the endless collisions that make up the universe. Out of that theology, we have come to believe that there really is no overarching story to this life. There really is no universal purpose and identity that all humans have. And so your identity is what you make of it. And your purpose in life is what you find fulfillment in. A college athlete like Jameis Winston might say, you do you. Or as Madonna, the famous pop star, once put it, I'm for freedom of expression, doing what you believe in, and going after your dreams. So the ultimate good in our society today is being, quote, true to yourself. Because really, there is no truth outside of yourself. But even as we've come to believe that we establish truth and identity for our own own selves and we make our own truth, a disturbing trend has developed alongside of that. Alongside of more freedom and acceptance of anything and everything, the suicide rate in America has correspondingly skyrocketed. From 1999 to 2014, the suicide rate in America increased 24%. At that same time, a more disturbing statistic or or a disturbing complementary statistic to that developed. And that is at the same time, the murder rate dropped 33%. And that's disturbing because apparently we're not killing other people anymore. We're just killing ourselves. That that is the result of a life lived without purpose and without meaning. And you would think that in a society that accepts anything and everything and says things like you be you and you find your own truth, that the suicide rate would be declining as a result of that positive self-affirming Statistic or stuff affirming uh, philosophy. But the opposite is true because at the end of the day, if everyone has a truth, then there is really nothing that is true and right. And there really is no story that you're a part of. There really is no point. And the interesting thing is that King Solomon so many years ago had it right when he said in Ecclesiastes 1 verses 2 through 10, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, 
but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the, seas, uh, where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said? See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. Now we want to believe that we are the masters of our own faith. We want to believe that we are an absolutely free being, undefined and unhindered by any outside law. But the truth is, we were made for a purpose and we have a specific identity. We find this purpose and identity in the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, you look just right back a couple of pages over or a page over, and you find these words at the very beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What Genesis 1, verses 1 through 31 tells us is that God created all things and that everything that He made was good. We, we aren't wrong to assume that there must be a defining being, a, a being that is totally free and defining in the universe. The problem is, we ain't it. We are not the ones who define the reality of this world. We find instead in this passage that God is the one who is before all things, and He is the one who defines all things. He speaks and things come to be. And there is no chaos. There's no conflict. There's no struggle to survive. There is only an obedient creation that bends to the every word of its creator. That is what we find in the beginning. And at the height of that created work, we find in verse 26 that God declares something different about mankind. Over and over again, God has spoken and things have come to be. And yet in verse 26, we find that he stops and he deliberates over this creation that he is about to perform in making man and woman. And we find that unlike the rest of creation, God notes two unique aspects of the creation of man. First... He says that he will make man in his own image and likeness. And second, he says that he will give him dominion over all of creation. When God declares that he will make man in his image, uh, this is not to say that God is going to make us physically to look like himself. And it's not even to say that God is going to give us all of his attributes. But there are two ways that the Bible consistently talks about this image of God that he's created us in. The first is that this image involves rulership. 
In the same way that God rules over all things, man is to rule over God's creation. God has created us to be rulers in this world. He says it in two different ways. First, in verse 26, he says, let them have dominion. You might have noticed that word when we were reading. And then verse 28, when he gives man and woman the command to be fruitful and multiply, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and what? Subdue it, right? To bring it into order, to make it, uh, to rule over it. Men and women, by virtue of their created nature, are made to be kings and queens over God's creation. Now this truth is in stark contrast to the belief of the Canaanites and the, and the Egyptians that were surrounding the Israelites at the time that the book of Genesis was written. To the Canaanites and the Egyptians, they believed that their king was the image bearer of God. And that that king was literally a full representative of God on earth. But only the king was an image bearer of God. But in the real and true creation, what Moses reveals to us in Genesis chapter 1 is that God has created every man and every woman to be his image bearer to all of creation. And a major aspect of that is that we rule in his place in this creation that he has given us. Now, our modern views of rulership are uh, over creation aren't much better than the ancient pagans. You know, the naturalist would say that we are no different than any other animal. And so our modern ethics have, have elevated animal life to that of human life. You know, it's interesting that at the same time that our adoration for our pets has risen to the level that you can now sit with your little lap dog at a fancy restaurant and enjoy your steak while others look at you strangely. Um, at that same time, the abortion rate in America has risen to new heights. You see, we value, we say that there is no difference in the life of a human and the life of our little lap dog. But in God's good creation, men and women are set apart as the rulers of the world. And every man and woman, regardless of status, regardless of race, regardless of age, regardless of their position in this life, regardless of how much money they have, how much power they have, how much influence they have, regardless of who they are and where they come from, every person in this world is made in the image of the invisible God and they are endowed with the authority to rule and to reign with Him. And not only does this image mean that we are rulers like God, but it also means that we have a relationship with God. God has uniquely created mankind to be in a relationship with Him. We are not just another, another animal in the long list of animals that God created in the first 25 chapters of Genesis. I mean, 25 verses of Genesis. We are not just another one of those kinds. 
We are made of the same likeness as God. In fact, when Moses records the lineage of Adam in Genesis chapter 5, he notes in verse 1 that Adam had a son named Seth after his likeness and in his image. And so the idea behind this being made in the likeness of God is that in the same way that Seth is made in the likeness of his father Adam, Adam was made in the likeness of his father, God himself. And what that says is that we were made to image forth, to be in relationship with and to give glory back to our heavenly father, God. It's like when someone looks at Logan, and I'm going to pick on him because he's here today. When somebody looks at Logan and they look at a picture of me in the fifth grade, they say, you look just like your daddy, right? You bear his mark. You bear his image. And that's the idea behind this likeness of God, that we are a reflection back to God of his glory and his honor. And here we have the purpose of man as God intended it to be. We are to reflect back the glory of God by bearing his image and his likeness and his will throughout all of creation. We are to rule over God's good creation by bringing his word to bear over all that he has made. And even though our society has gotten as far from this original purpose as we possibly could, we cannot escape it. Notice the, the, uh, the recent political movement, the recent environmental activism that would outlaw straws in California so that it would not kill sea turtles. Consider the, the next PETA commercial that you see that implores you to have mercy on endangered species because they are going extinct. Uh, look at a modern city with all of its concrete and skyscrapers. And yet, even within all of that concrete and skyscraper, you will find a garden and a park of every kind. Now, I want you to think about this. The bears aren't concerned with sea turtles and the deer aren't out making gardens for everybody. Where does this concern for animal welfare, where does this care for endangered species, where does this persistent construction of gardens come from? It comes from the innate image of God that he has given us. Even while we deny that there is a God in whose image we are made, we cannot escape our purpose of ruling over the creation that he has given us. In a similar way, we can't escape the relationship that is innate within this image that he has given us. Even in our modern era, where we hide behind our Facebook wall, where we prefer the impersonal text message to the phone call or the visit, where our media choices and our advertisements are even tailored to our preferred and stated interest. Even in this culture, we still find ourselves lonely and in need of relationship. We may have a thousand Facebook, quote, friends, but 
we might not we might still feel empty inside because we don't have one true friend. This longing for relationship speaks to the image of God in us. God has made us for relationship with with him. And as St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. So if the image of God is so distorted in our day, how are we to know what this image of God really looks like? How are we to see an example? How are we to know what ruling as God would have us to do would look like? How are we know to to what a true relationship with God should look like? We can know what the real image of God looks like because there is one true image bearer who has ever lived, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the perfect image and imprint of the nature of God. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the mold from which we are made. He is very God of very God. And not only that, but He is the true ruler of the world. Because of His life, death, and resurrection, the Bible says that He has proven Himself to be the King over all things. Even the King over death, even the King over sin, and even the King over hell itself. Philippians 2 verse 5 through 11 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Because Jesus is the perfect image of God and has established a perfect kingdom that will never end, we can now have the purpose and identity that God has intended for us because of Jesus. Because of His work in, the, uh, in living the perfect life that we could not live, Jesus has restored the image of God to us so that we, even though our, the image of God is marred by our sin through his life giving work and his life giving uh, resurrection, we can have a new image that is given to us. In Ephesians 4 verse 24, Paul says that Christ has given us a new self, which is the restored image of God. And not only that, but Peter says in 1 Peter 9, uh, 1, 9, 
that He has made us a part of a new nation that is made up of every tribe and every tongue and every people. That God has made a new people in the world that are bearing His image and living out the purpose that He created us to live out. You know, over and over again, you find in the Old Testament that God has given this assignment of ruling and reigning to people and they have failed. Look at Adam. Adam, you know the rest of the story, ultimately fails to rule over the creation that God has given him. He fails to tell the serpent that what he has said about God is wrong and to reject the message of the serpent. Over and over again, from Adam to the people of Noah's day, to the people of the Tower of Babel who were also supposed to go forth and to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. But rather they said, let us build a tower that we might stay in this place and make a name for ourselves. Over and over again, people have failed. Even the people of Israel have failed. But where people have failed to rule in God's good creation, Jesus Christ succeeded. And He has set up a kingdom that will never end. And His gospel has gone forth into all the world. And so friend, regardless of what, may, of what Madonna may tell you, you cannot find your own truth. Make your own identity. Or discover your own purpose in this world. If you continue to try to live life by your own rules, by your own standards, then you will run headfirst into a life, a reality that, that apart from God, life has no purpose. And ultimately, there is no identity that will satisfy your soul. The only way to have purpose an identity, the purpose and identity for which God created you is to turn to Jesus Christ and find in Him the true image of God. The one that would serve. The one that would give His life as a ransom for many. The one that would love His enemy. The one that would do good to those that despised Him. Find in Jesus Christ your true identity and your true purpose, and follow Him. Brothers and sisters, our identity and our purpose cannot be defined by the world around us. It cannot be defined by a new year of resolutions or other people's perceptions of us. Our identity and our purpose is ultimately found in Jesus Christ. And it is ultimately found in the restored life that He has given to us, and that He has given to His church. And so our purpose in this world, in this new year, is to bring God's Word to bear. To bring His rule to bear in our lives, in, our li- in the lives of our families, and in the lives of our world. I, ta- I told my children about this a uh, couple of nights back, and I asked them to think about what they rule over. And it was a hard thing for them to think about what they rule over. Micah struggled with it because, you know, he's eight years old. But, uh, but where in your life do you rule? Do you 
have a plot of land, bring it to under the rule and the reign of God. Do you have a family? Bring that family under the rule and the reign of God. Do you have friends that you influence and that you know uh, will listen to you and listen to your wisdom? Bring it that them under the rule and the reign of God. Do you have an opportunity in Pineapple, Alabama to influence this town and this county for the Lord? Then bring what your responsibilities are under the rule and the reign of your Lord Jesus Christ. Only then will we know this restored humanity that God is working to bring about through His Son, Jesus Christ, and through His kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are indeed the the Creator of all life, and You are the one who is bringing about a new creation through Your Son, who is the perfect image of the Father. Father, thank You for... uh, this word. Thank you for the image of God that you have given us. Thank you for the rule and the responsibility that you have given us. Thank you for the relationship that you have given us and restored through your son and through your spirit. Father, I pray that you would work in us this week, that we might go out not just to set resolutions about our outward appearance or our the perceptions that other people might have of us, but to... Um, but to set resolutions, to resolve, to bring your word to bear in our community, in our families, and in our own lives. Father, bless us as we continue to worship you. May you be glorified in all that we say and do. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.